Good evening, church family. It's so good to end off the Lord's Day together and come to worship Him. Thank you, Cliff and the team, for leading us. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn me to Math Mark. So I Mark chapter 9, verse 30 onwards. Uh, after a five-week break, we're back in the Gospel of Mark, and we're looking at another one of Jesus' passion predictions, where he predicts his death and resurrection. And remember the context. Jesus is with his disciples. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And on his way, he's teaching his disciples what it means to be a disciple. Three times he tells them that he will be rejected, be killed, and be raised. And after each of these predictions, he tells them what it means to be a follower of his. In the first passion prediction, we saw that disciples follow, and they follow by dying to themselves, they follow by being devoted to him, and they follow by being dependent upon God. This evening, we're going to see the disciples serve. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please read along with me, uh, verse 30, all the way to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Let's hear it together. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he, sat, and he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he, th he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Only so far in the reading of God's word may you reform our lives to its truth. Uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us again. 
Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be instructed by you. We also recognize, dear Lord, that your word says elsewhere that blessed are those who keep your testimonies and who seek you with their whole heart. And having just read your word, would you not help us? Would you not help us to seek your, you with our whole heart, to seek to keep your testimonies, to ensure that our ways are blameless before you. By your Spirit and because of your Son, may we be those who are truly blessed because our ways are blameless and because we walk in the law of the Lord with all our heart. We ask this for the sake of Christ and in his name. Amen. You see it in a young girl singing into her mother's hairbrush, before an imaginary crowd. Uh, you see it in a young man who dreams one day of scoring the winning try to the adulation of his friends. You see it in the young adult who is consumed with his or her image, longing for the admiration of their peers. Uh, you see it in the businessman who flaunts his power, his position, his possessions. You see it even in the influencer on social media who makes sure that you see everything they do. You see it even in the retiree who boasts in all that he's seen, all that he's done, all that he's achieved. Whether subtle or not so subtle, whether spoken or unspoken, in all these scenarios, we see the human desire for greatness. We see the human desire to be esteemed. And let's be honest, sometimes this desire is motivated by pride. Sometimes it's moved by wanting to exalt ourselves over others. We see this desire for greatness in the disciples, don't we? See, we see these disciples, Jesus just told them again that he's going to die. He just told them that he's going to be delivered into the hands of evil men. He is going to be killed and he'll be raised on the third day. Yet this news has no impact, it seems, on them. While he's preparing to give himself as a sacrifice, they are preoccupied with status. While he's preparing to, to die for the sake of others, these disciples are striving to exalt themselves over others. See, these disciples have been captured by the proud, self-exalting desire for greatness. And we would do well to remember who these disciples were. These were blue-collar men. These were fishermen and tax collectors. These were not the rich and the affluent of society. These were men who had little and who had given up all they had to follow Christ. Yet even these men who died all for Christ, who were in Christ's very presence, these men found themselves consumed by this proud ambition that exalts self over others. And the challenge for us is this, if it could be true of them, how often is it not perhaps true of us? After all, who here doesn't want to be great? Who here doesn't want to be great? There's nothing inherently wrong in that question. Surely we should desire some measure of greatness. We should desire to be great Christians. 
great parents, great spouses, great friends, great adult professions. Who doesn't desire to be great? But unfortunately, so often we come to that question with the wrong answers. We come to that question with selfish ambition. We come with proud desire for status and prestige. We come with an exalted view of ourselves and a low view of others. But the good news is Jesus comes to us in this passage and he teaches us what true greatness is. Look at verse 35. Verse 35 is the key verse in this section. I would argue this entire section is teasing out this particular verse. It says there, And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now notice, Jesus doesn't reject the question about greatness. No, far from it. He, he redefines it. He, he redefines what true greatness is. True greatness is not found in exalting yourself over others. No, true greatness is found in humbling yourself for the sake of serving others. Now, I'm sure we can understand why. We can understand why this is what true greatness is all about. True greatness is all about humbling self and serving because that's what Jesus was all about. He was the great and glorious Son of God who came to our world, humbled himself, and served, and gave his life as a ransom in serving. See, contrary to the world's ideas, true greatness is found not in focusing on self, but in following Christ. Not in receiving, but giving. Not in, in ruling, but serving. But the question becomes, what does that look like in practice? What does it look like to humble self and serve? Well, I would, I would argue the rest of our passage answers those questions. And so as we consider this text, I want us to see five actions of true greatness. And the first is this, true greatness will in the first place elevate others. True greatness will elevate others. You see that again in verse 35. That's the point of verse 35, isn't it? Instead of being all about ourselves, Jesus says we ought to be all about others. And notice the two ingredients that he mentions in verse 35. He says, if he would be great, you must first be lost of all. That Greek word word there implies that you must put others before yourself. That is, you must consider yourself the least, the last, the lowest. Jesus beautifully illustrates the reason why this matters in Luke 14. In the parable of the wedding feast, he says that if you're invited to a feast, don't go first sit in the highest place. No, go sit in the lowest place. Why? Well, reasoning is simple. Rather, sit in the lowest place and be elevated by the host. Rather do that than be sitting in the highest place and being demoted to the lower place with shame and guilt. And Jesus points out the Clearly why that matters in verse 11 of Luke 14. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the point is, true greatness is actually found in humility. 
actually viewing yourself the least. But that's not all. Jesus says, if you would be first, you must not only be last of all, but servant of all. This is not just the case of, of being humble, but in your humility, you must be humble toward others for their good. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or consider what Paul says, Philippians 2, 4. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. See, that's the point that Mark is making in Mark 9, 35. Jesus is saying, look to the interests of others. And how do you do that? Serve. That word serve there, being a servant of all, is the word we get deacon from. We know that. But realize that word implies more than just a service being delivered. No, it speaks of a service that's delighted in. I think of a slave. A slave serves, but only because he has to. That's what this word means. It's speaking here of a personal devotion that delights in serving. A personal devotion that is willingly looking to the sake for the sake of others to serve. And we know this goes so contrary to our world. Now you recall a few weeks ago we looked at deacons and I pointed out that Plato once asked that question, how can a man be happy who serves anyone? And as we saw last time, the Christian says, yes, we can be happy in serving because even in serving we imitate our Savior. Jesus said, Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, 27, I'm among you as one who serves. And how did he serve? By giving his life as a ransom for many. And so realize when we understand this, then we get to see what true greatness is actually all about. It's found in humbling yourself and serving others. Not being all about yourself, but others. Uh, William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, was once due to preach at a conference that he couldn't because of ill health. Yet he nevertheless sent his message to the organizers, and his message was essentially one word, others. See, in his service of Christ, he was concerned for others. And see, that's what true greatness is about, elevating others. I love this quote by Andrew Murray that fits so well with this passage. He says, Oh, if only all would believe that it is God-like to, hum to humble oneself and to become a servant of all. This, he says, is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven. This is the royal spirit that the king of heaven displayed. This is the path to the gladness and the glory of Christ's presence dwelling in us, being concerned for others, humbling yourself before others, serving others. That, he says, is God-like. It's Christ-like. And so the first place, see, that true greatness will elevate others. But in the second place, notice that true greatness will also embrace the lowly. Embrace the lowly. You see that in verse 36 to 37. Uh, from 36, Jesus illustrates and elaborates the point by not only inviting a child into their midst, but embracing this child. Now, to understand why that matters and the significance of this, we need to remember that in Jesus' day, unlike our own, 
Children had no social standing. They, they were the lowest, had the lowest social status. In a sense, not only were children not to be heard, they weren't even to be seen. For example, think of Mark 10, 13. In that passage, Jesus is blessing the children. Yet, it were the disciples do. They, they, they rebuke the people bringing the children. They, they chase the children away. Why? Because in their eyes, children are just too unimportant, too insignificant. And so when we understand that, it blows up this passage. It makes it come alive. See, not only is true greatness seen in humbling ourselves before others, for others, it is found in embracing those who society deems unworthy. It's found in embracing those who are too weak, too unimportant, too insignificant. See, true greatness serves by embracing the lowly, the small, the powerless. In fact, what good would it do us if we only humble ourselves and serve those who are mighty and wealthy and influential and who are good to us? Remember, the Bible strictly warns us against showing partiality and prejudice. James 2 Verse 8 to 10 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. What James is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that if we truly please God, if we truly love our neighbor, not only will we not show partiality, but we will welcome and serve and do good even to the lowly. I remember Jesus' sermon in Luke 6, often called the Sermon on the Plain, in verse 33 says, If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? You realize to only serve because you get something out of it is not really to serve. It's not you humbling yourself. It's actually you still serving yourself. Listen to his exhortation a few verses later, verse 35. But love your neighbors, he says, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, therefore, even as your Father is merciful. And so realize Dear friends, true service is motivated not by self, not by the supposed rewards. It's motivated by God. True grace, true greatness embraces the lowly because God in grace has embraced us. In Christ, God has come near to the outcasts, to the unworthy, to the despised, to the disregarded. He's come near and he's embraced us. He's invited us. He's welcomed us. And so even this evening, if you're an outcast, if you're an outcast because you've sinned, if you're an outcast because you're despised by this society and this world, know that we serve a God who even welcomes you, people like me and you. And dear friends, when we remember that, when we remember that God draws near not to those who are most wise, not to those who are most rich or most strong, when he draws near to the weak, then surely, surely, we would embrace the weak. We would embrace the outcast, the lowly. If we understood this, we would willingly serve even those below us. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood this. He said this in one of his books. Once a man has experienced the mercy of God in his life, he will henceforth aspire to serve. The proud throne of the judge no longer lures him. He wants to be down below with the lowly and the needy because that's where God found him. Dear friends, recognize true greatness is therefore seen in embracing the lowly, the weak, the outcast, the unimportant, those who are unworthy. And notice particularly what Jesus says in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child, those who are discarded, those who are unworthy, in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. In other words, do you want to know something of, of God's grace and something of God's favor and presence and blessing? Well, then embrace the lowly. Show kindness to those who are unworthy. Show mercy and grace. And so in the second place, see that true greatness welcomes the lowly or embraces the lowly. In the third place, note that true greatness will encourage fellow believers. True greatness will encourage fellow believers. You see that in verse 38 to 42. In verse 37, Jesus speaks of receiving a child in his name, and, and that sparks in the apostle John's memory, because in verse 38 onwards, he speaks of how he and the other disciples try to stop someone else from casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so what we see in verse 38 is that the apostles acted like a self-important clique. They were an entitled bunch who excluded others. And not only were they entitled, I would argue they were probably envious. I remember in Mark 9, 18, as Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he meets a crowd and we see that the disciples were unable to, to cast out a demon from a little boy. His disciples, his apostles weren't able to do it. Yet here in this passage, an unknown and unnamed disciple we see casts out demons. And what do they do? What do these apostles do? They try to stop him. And the picture, we're paint, the picture being painted here is that these entitled and envious apostles, instead of encouraging another brother, another disciple, actually discourage him. They throw cold water on, he, on what he does. And so in verse 39 to 40, Jesus rebukes them. The fact that this disciple could cast out demons is proof that he's not against Christ, but with and for him. And therefore, they have no grounds whatsoever to dismiss him because God is busy working through him. Now, just pause right there very quickly. How often are we not guilty of doing that exact same thing? When God is blessing another, when God is working miraculously through another, we often, because it's not in our clique, in our fold, we dismiss another brother. We dismiss what God is doing in those people and how wrong we are. And if, if that's us, if, if we despise what God is doing in others, take note of verse 41. He says, therefore, truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to me, i.e., as that disciple did belong to Jesus, you will by no means 
lose his reward. He will by no means lose his reward. Now what's Jesus saying? He's saying, encourage those belong, who belong to me. He's saying, support and provide for those who are mine. And, and the way he does it is quite masterful. He says, if someone encourages you with a cup of water, then they will surely be rewarded. And the implication and the rebuke for the disciples is this. If there is a reward for those who encourage you because you belong to me, then surely there would be a reward for you if you encourage others who belong to me. Did you see what Jesus is getting at? He's saying, don't be an entitled, envious clique. Don't be a holy huddle that looks down upon others, that discourages them. No, rather, encourage, build up, support. I recall what Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 10, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And realize, dear friends, this is a serious matter to Jesus. And it's serious because of what verse 42 says. Look at verse 42. He carries on. He hasn't changed the subject. He's not changed, moved on to something else. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me, I, those who belong to me, whoever causes one to sin or stumble, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. See, Jesus is issuing a warning here. To cause another believer to sin and stumble in their faith, to, to cause another believer to be discouraged in their service, is ultimately to invite God's judgment and wrath upon yourself. Uh, let, let's remember that the next time we, we feel the need to criticize and discourage and speak ill. See, Jesus takes this quite serious. And really emphasizes the larger point. True greatness is found in that servant who encourages. In that servant who builds others up in their faith. I think even of Jesus in this passage. He, here are his disciples, his apostles, and they're bickering among themselves. They spent three years with him. And they don't get it yet. What does he do? Does, does he dismiss them? Does he discard them? No, he... He bears with them still. He sits with them. He teaches them. He, he builds them up. See, Jesus, in the truest sense, is a greater encourager than anyone else. Uh, when his disciples were encouraged in John 14 with his imminent departure, how did he encourage them? He told them, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And how has he come? Well, he's come through the Spirit, through the paracletos, through the helper, the, the encourager. And it's through the Spirit that, that He continues to encourage. It's through His Spirit that He builds up His church, Acts 9.31. It's through His Spirit that He gives joy to afflicted, His afflicted people. It's through His Spirit that He pours out God's love in our hearts. It's through His Spirit that He fills us with peace and hope. See, Jesus is the great encourager, and therefore greatness is found in following him and following him by encouraging others. 
by, by building them up. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you encouraged someone? When was the last time of yourself and for the sake of others, whether through a word or a deed, you actually sought to build up others, to see them be encouraged? I'm so thankful for the many ways in which the saints have encouraged me, whether through a word or a deed. Yet we need to recognize that, that this should be something that all of us do. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, well, I, I haven't been encouraged. Or perhaps the question is, when last did you encourage? We need to recognize, as Mark Chansky says in one of his books on encouragement, encouragement is the adrenaline of the soul. So just as adrenaline provides new life and strength to the body, so encouragement provides new life and strength for your soul. It's often that word of encouragement, often that deed of encouragement that keeps a saint or a brother to persevere, to, to not give up, to still have hope when it seems life is hopeless. And, and see, therein is true greatness as we emulate Christ to encourage others and build them up. And note, fourthly, that true greatness will eliminate selfishness. It will eliminate selfishness. You see that verse 43 to 49, but look again at verse 43. These are stark images that Jesus uses. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, again, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Three times Jesus speaks of causes of sin. Three times he calls for the cutting off of any means of sin. Three times he references hell as the consequence of sin. You realize he isn't calling for, for us to mutilate our bodies. No, it's far worse than that. He's calling us in the most emphatic way possible to take sin seriously, to, to not play with it, to put it to death. Anything, yes, anything that leads to sin must be cut off and chopped off. And, and realize what Jesus says here is far-reaching. That's why he uses this language of hands and feet and eyes. Those are describing how we live our lives in, in terms of what we do with our hands, in terms of where we go with our feet, in terms of what we see with our eyes. In all of life, we must kill sin. Now, these instructions aren't new. Jesus gives them in Matthew 5. He speaks there of, of sexual sin and lust, and we ought to cut off any member that sins. But here's what's interesting in this particular passage. The sin that Jesus has in view isn't sexual sin. Now, in the context, it's selfishness. It's that selfishness that elevates self over others. That selfishness that excludes others. And the point is, the selfishness is that sin that you must take so seriously that when it shows its head, you're supposed to chop it off. I, I, I don't know about you, but uh, this challenges me, and it should challenge each one of us. 
we often elevate sexual sin as the greatest sin. And it is great. Paul says it's sin against God and against our body. Yet one of the results of elevating it so much is that we treat sin like pride as if it's less dangerous. In our passage, Jesus says no. Selfishness, pride, ambition. These two ought to be radically put to death. These two ought to be eliminated. It's tragic because for many Christians, they would be ashamed of sexual sin. Yet many Christians are completely unashamed when it comes to pride. I've seen this in seminary lecturers who boast in their knowledge, their PhDs, thinking that that excuses selfishness. I've seen this in pastors who pride themselves in being God's untouchable man. I've seen this in wealthy and seasoned, mature believers who think because they've made it, they can throw their weight around. I've seen this even in Reformed Christians who pride themselves in the doctrines of grace. And perhaps worst of all, I've seen this in the mirror, where pride is that hideous blemish that we just ignore. Dear friends, dear church, we should be ashamed of selfishness. Not only because it's a deadly sin that leads to hell and unquenchable fire, but also because it's so contrary to Christ. Now, what a comfort it is to know that Jesus isn't selfish, but selfless. Remember how he cheated himself. Remember how he spoke, John 5, 19. He said, I do nothing of my own accord. John 6, 38. I have not come to do my own will, he says. John 8, 28. I do nothing of my own authority. John 8, 50. I do not seek my own glory. John 14, 31. As I do, as the Father commanded me. And what did the Father command him? To go to the cross. To yield himself for sinners like us. You see this even in Mark 9, 31, when Jesus says, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men. That be delivered is, many would argue, the divine passive. It's speaking of what God is doing. God gives his Son as the sacrificial lamb for sinners. And you know what? Jesus accepts it. He takes that call upon himself. That's why he prays, not my will, but your will be done. And never miss the fact, never miss the beauty that Christ is selfless and he selflessly gives himself for sinners. And therefore, true greatness is found in selflessness. It's found in putting to death any trace of selfishness that makes it all about us and not others and about Christ. We would do well to follow the counsel of Thomas A. Kempis. He says, let this be thy whole endeavor, this thy prayer, this thy desire, that thou may be stripped of all selfishness and with entire simplicity follow Jesus only. And if you need more motivation, remember what's at stake. Look at the consequences of not dealing with selfishness. How? unquenchable fire, the worm that does not die, are all what await those who rest in their selfishness, who rest and pride themselves in themselves. Therefore, the truly great will eliminate selfishness. 
fifthly and finally, after speaking about how let's take a breath, the truly great will ensure peace. The truly great will ensure peace. Uh, Jesus concludes his instruction in verse 50. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will, it ma- how will you make it salt again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, why is salt good? Well, I think we know uh, salt isn't just used in the ancient world for seasoning food. No, back then it was available preservative. It was used to keep food from going putrid or going bad. And as a result, it often symbolized something that had a good beneficial influence. I think of Matthew 5.13. Jesus says that we are to be the salt of the earth, which in context means be a good influence in the world. How? Well, do good deeds to the glory of God. And so when Jesus here says, have salt in yourselves, plural, in you as the disciples, in you as the church, he's essentially saying, have a good, beneficial influence. But how must you have an influence? Good works? Now look at the last bit of verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another, i.e., be peacemakers. That's how you are salt in this world. So instead of arguing and bickering and fighting with one another like these disciples, the disciples of Christ ought to be about peace, or to be about restoration, or to be about maintaining the unity of the faith. Paul says the same thing, 1 Thessalonians 5.13, be at peace among yourselves, Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue for what makes peace and mutual upholding. And, and what does that look like? 2 Corinthians 13, 11, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Or perhaps let's not forget Jesus' beatitude, Matthew 5, 9, blessed that is, content, joyful, happy, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why sons of God? Because the Son of God was a peacemaker. See, the Son of God was the Prince of Peace, who with the blood of the cross made peace. He's the Lord of Peace, who leads our feet in the paths of peace. And therefore, to have salt in yourselves is to have Christ And not just to have Christ, but to follow Christ. And in following Christ, pursuing peace. Great in God's eyes, or a great offense in God's eyes is the vision. See, God's eyes, God's, in God's eye, greatness isn't found in dividing brothers and causing brothers to stumble and forming our own little cliques. No, true greatness in God's eyes is about ensuring and seeking out peace. And, and the question naturally becomes for us, is that us? Is that you? Is that me? Are we those who are marked by, by having a good beneficial influence because we are disciples that seek peace? Do we do what First, Second Corinthians 13 says? Do we aim for restoration? Do we seek to comfort one another? Do we seek to agree with one another? Do we seek to live in peace? And, and therefore enjoy the peace of God. 
Dear people of God, let's see Psalm 34, 14. Turn away from evil, do good, and seek peace and pursue it. And therein lies the path to greatness. Not only do we elevate others, not only do we embrace the lowly, not only do we encourage fellow believers, not only do we eliminate selfishness, but we ultimately seek out the blessing of peace, rest, satisfaction, joy in one another and in our God who gives us peace. And so as I close, let me ask that question again. Who here doesn't want to be great? That's not a bad question as long as you align it with God's idea of greatness, as long as you align it with God's great son. If you want greatness, if you want to be great as before God's eyes, follow his son. Believe upon Christ and yield yourself to Christ and serve like Christ. And dear friends, that is the motive and the means to true greatness. Here's my prayer for me and here's my prayer for you. My prayer is that we would be great. Great not because of anything in us, anything we do, any self-exaltation that we pursue. No, great because we follow Christ and serve like Christ and display Christ for the world to see. Now, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it only feels right to start by confessing that in many ways we do exalt ourselves. In many ways we are all about ourselves. In many ways we love Christ, but we haven't followed Christ in loving others in service. And we ask the Lord that you'd forgive us. We ask that for those times and those seasons that we've been divisive and bickering, where we've been argumentative, where we've sought our own ways and our own interests. We ask that you'd forgive us. And we want to thank you that you do give forgiveness. Thank you that you're patient with your people, patient with us in our failures. But we ask that through your spirit even now you would help us to to see again the beauty and the wonder of Christ in our Savior who humbled himself, who became lowly and a servant of all. Would his image, would his gospel so transform us again, so renew us and so reinvigorate us that we would become lowly and servants of all. That as a church body, we would be known by by a radical holiness that excludes sin but not others, that loves and embraces, but also people who who make much of Christ. Help us in this. We again confess our, our need. We confess our failure. But we also confess that you are faithful and you are gracious and that you're able to do far more than we can think or imagine. And so we ask that you would do this in your Son and through your Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen.